Welcome to Christian Disappointment. In this episode, I'm talking to myself about Cindy Mayweather. I had originally planned to discuss the major crush of my late teens and early 20s, Janelle Monet, but then wasn't quite sure how to do that by myself uh, without talking to someone. So I moved on to this idea of doing a sort of biography for Cindy Mayweather, as I've never fully understood her story, and I thought that'd be fun to investigate. Uh, but I soon found out that it's by design that her story is confusing and doesn't link up nicely, and I'll get into that in the episode. But um, And also, I felt like I didn't want to sort of over-explain her, because I've had that done to me with things I really enjoy, like 2001 A Space Odyssey and Mulholland Drive, where having these kind of... Um, airtight interpretations that sort of diminish them for me, so I don't want to do that. Uh, so what I was left with was a load of quotes about subjects like cyborg feminism and Afrofuturism, um, and I didn't want to just like wade into that with my ideas and make a load of mistakes, because like, I don't know anything about those ideas. So this episode is very quote-heavy, and I seem to lose confidence in what I'm doing at some point, so listen out for the moment when hope lose my voice. Um, what I do think is good about this episode, though, is the notes section. There's some really good sources in there that you can sort of read, watch, and listen to. So I'd recommend you check those out. Pretty much everything that I mentioned in this episode is available online there. So I think that's it. Here's the crush. Cindy Mayweather, Android number 57821, is an Alpha Platinum 9000 from the year 2719. Her original programming included a rockstar proficiency package and a working soul and it's likely that it was this combination that enabled her to become a famous cyber-soul artist. Most importantly for the purpose of this podcast, though, is the fact that she is a state-of-the-art organic android. This combination of the organic and the mechanic entails that she can also be classed as a cyborg. Uh, in the 21st century, so as now, the, how we know about Cindy Mayweather is that this has been foretold by the time traveller Janelle Monet through songs, emotion pictures, and works of art. The Metropolis Saga, as it's known, is currently intended to be made up of seven parts, or suites, five of which have already been released. Suite 1 is included on Metropolis, an EP from 2007. Suites 2 and 3 feature on the Ark Android from 2010. And Suites 4 and 5 feature on the Electric Lady from 2013. In the liner notes of Metropolis, the EP that begins the story of Cindy Mayweather, we're given some backstory that I wasn't aware of until I started putting this together because I've only ever listened to it on MP3. So anyway, it says that five world wars have decimated the Earth. To escape from the ecological destruction, mankind has banded together to create one last great city named Metropolis. Under the rule of the evil Wolfmasters, the city becomes a decadent wonderland, known for its partying robo-zillionaires, riotous ethnic, race and class conflicts, and petty holocausts. But zillions come to Metropolis hoping for a better life, because if you can make it in Metropolis, you can make it anywhere. It's also worth noting here that Metropolis is home to elves and dwarves, humans and androids, clones and aliens but it's the story of the androids enslaved by the humans that we follow throughout the Metropolis saga. So in a 2013 interview with Pace magazine, Janelle Monet explains that the androids mostly live in the Slop City neighbourhood. There, and this is the quote, the community is very supportive like any other ghetto. They can be working in stores, they can be working in factories, you have people working at the post office and people delivering newspapers, only the newspaper is a chip. The automobiles in Slop City are retro-futuristic. A car may look like a 1967 Chevy, but the wheels are floating. When it drove around Metropolis, it was brand new, but now it's a used model in Slop City. The architecture is not cutting edge because they don't have the advanced technology that the humans have in Metropolis, so they have dilapidated buildings. Very dystopian. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that Cindy, being a celebrity pop star, is able to live in one of the nicer parts of Metropolis, but she, according to Monet, is still subject to discriminatory Jim Chrome laws that determine where androids can live, where they can work, and who they can love. 
Cindy begins to become more aware of her own exploitation and that of androids more generally. It's about the time she falls in love with Anthony Greendown, a human and the son of a global millionaire. They both want to help the people suffering in Slop City, and Cindy finds this aspect of him very attractive. Monet states that Mayor Weber felt in her heart he wanted to do something life-changing for her community. She saw that he cared about animals and could even morph into them. Uh, however, it is against the rules for an android to love a human. Uh, this is where we begin with the first track of the EP, The March of the Wolfmasters, where Jeffrey Heim states a perky female newscaster from 28th Century Fox chirps. Good morning, Cyboys and Cybergirls. I am happy to announce that we have a star-crossed winner in today's Heartbreak Sweepstakes. Android number 57821, otherwise known as Cindy Mayweather, has fallen desperately in love with a human named Anthony Greendown. And do you know the rules? She is now scheduled for immediate disassembly. Bounty Hunters, you can find her in the Neon Valley Street District on the fourth floor at the Leopard Plaza apartment complex. The droid control marshals are full of fun rules today. No phasers, only chainsaws and electro daggers. Remember, only card-carrying hunters can join our chase today. And as usual, there will be no reward until her cyber soul is turned into the Star Commission. Happy hunting! So that's how we begin, but before we get into her story properly, I want to explore Donna Haraway's 1986 essay, a Cyborg Manifesto, Science, Technology, and Socialist Feminism in Late 20th Century. Uh, I found this fun to look at again, but it's pretty difficult. Well, I found it pretty difficult to comprehend. And I basically ad adapted some notes I made when I studied this at uni, but there some bits are in bold, some bits were in red. So I think there's quite a lot of inaccurate shit in here, but I couldn't work out what was good and what was bad. So uh, just bear that in mind, take this with a pinch of salt. So, Haraway defines a cyborg as a cybernetic organism, a hybrid of machine and organism, a creature of social reality, as well as a creature of fiction. So examples of cyborgs in fiction are like Robocop, Seven of Nine from Star Trek Voyager, Darth Vader, or the Bionic Woman, as they are hybrids of the mechanical and the organic. Uh, just to be clear, cyborgs are different from androids, which are robots made to resemble humans. So examples of these in fiction are Data from Star Trek The Next Generation, David from AI Artificial Intelligence. I think number six from Battlestar Galactica and Ava from Ex Machina count, even though they sort of look human and it looks like they've got skin but i think they count and c3po from star wars um this is why i brought up that cindy is a state-of-the-art organic android as this entails that she is a hybrid of machine and organism in terms of the cyborg's existence in social reality this rests upon haraway's assertion that now every person in the western world conforms to this hybridity and is thus a cyborg her classification of a cyborg therefore is very expansive including any person who's utilizing a mechanical or artificial device, such as a computer, phone, pacemaker, wheelchair or walking stick. Anyone who is utilising these tools, like you are in order to listen to this, is a mixture of the biological and the mechanic. Haraway's argument is that this boundary has been blurred and reworked to the point there is no clear distinction between the human and the machine. As a result, questions are raised as to what now defines a human being. The breakdown of this binary entails that cyborg imagery can suggest a way out of the maze of dualisms in which we've explained our bodies and our tools to ourselves. In other words, because the cyborg is neither neatly human nor machine, it breaks down strict dualisms such as organism-machine, mind-body, animal-human, and nature-culture, and allows new potentialities to become possible. A cyborg manifesto is an attempt to build an ironic political myth that deconstructs essentialist thinking. For Haraway, irony concerns contradictions that do not resolve into larger holes. 
It forbids components merely settling in a dichotomy. This revolves around the tension of keeping both aspects in place simultaneously, creating what Haraway terms a double vision. She argues that the political struggle is to see from both perspectives at once because each reveals dominations and possibilities unimaginable from the other vantage point. For the cyborg, one potential future is of a militarised apocalypse, while the other is a world of social and bodily realities in which people embrace partial identities. The idea of double vision is one that I'll return to a lot, to the extent that I was going to make a double vision, chuckle vision sound effect at one point. Um, as Cindy's story involves lots of contradictions that cannot be resolved, often with the interpretations reflecting either the militarised apocalypse or a utopia with post-humanism that is culturally and socially specific. So back to defining the cyborg. So Harry's conception of the cyborg differs radically from monsters which were used to define the limits of community. Centaurs, like cyborgs, are liminal beings, being both horse and human simultaneously. However, they were utilised in stories not to question the animal-human dichotomy, but to illustrate the humanity of the human characters. Therefore, the centaur was positioned as the other, excluded from the social norm and placed at the margins of society. The Western conception of the self has been created through othering people based on race, culture and or gender. A cyborg manifesto is an attempt to unite those people who have been othered through new political possibilities. Haraway uses a cyborg to demonstrate how certain groups rely on the notion of the other to maintain their supremacy, and this is achieved through the construction of dichotomies. For example, man is privileged because woman is positioned as lesser, as a variant of the norm. Therefore, Haraway wishes for the cyborg to deconstruct the fiction of women's experience, the conception that all women share essentialist qualities. Haraway argues that there is nothing about being female that naturally binds women. It is instead a consciousness that has been forced through patriarchy, colonialism and capitalism. In particular, women of colour, disabled women and women with AIDS exemplify cyborgs because they are othered on multiple levels. Adopting Chela Sandoval's term of oppositional consciousness, Haraway asserts that there are no essential qualities that join women of colour. Instead, individuals belong to this group because they have been othered. It is a political union for those who experience racism and sexism. This oppositional consciousness is prevalent in all cyborg politics, as a cyborg is an oppositional figure. Instead of identity, Harry makes a claim for an affinity of political kinship between people with similar revolutionary goals. Harry describes an affinity as related not by blood, but by choice. In other words, the groupings are not based on essential shared qualities, but on the fact that they share the same goals. Uh, Harry also acknowledges Katie King's theory that within feminist movements, one outlook becomes the central outlook of the group, while all others are marginalised. Therefore, Haraway is arguing that cyber politics concern learning how to craft a poetic political unity without relying on the logic of appropriation, incorporation and taxonomic difference. Haraway contrasts the cyborg with Frankenstein's monster as, unlike Shelley's creation, it does not dream of community on the model of the organic family. Instead, cyborg groupings are politically based, not in relation to party or gender politics, for example, but on common goals. Haraway terms this grouping united front politics and uses the Livermore Action Group as an example. Its members split into smaller groups engaging in different aspects of process in order to achieve its anti-nuclear goal. In postmodernity, politics has become diffused, but Haraway does not view this negatively. Instead, this can lead to groupings of people that would not have occurred otherwise. This in turn undermines all claims for an organic or natural standpoint. The concept of naturalness is undermined as something desirable as it is not free from patriarchal capitalism. Haraway states that the main trouble with cyborgs, of course, is that they are the illegitimate offspring of militarism and patriarchal capitalism, not to mention, state socialism. But illegitimate offspring are often exceedingly unfaithful to their origins. Their fathers, after all, are inessential. In other words, the creation of the cyborg came about through capitalism and investment in military research, 
However, like Marx's idea that capitalism will produce the tools to destroy itself, the cyborg will eventually turn on its creator. In Violet Star's Happy Hunting on the Metropolis EP, the backing vocals, which I think are like sort of Cindy's thoughts, state, I'm a product of metal, I'm a product of the man. So Mayweather's position as a product of capitalism and patriarchal militarism is clear from the start. Eventually, as the Ark Android, Cindy is similarly prophesied to turn on her creator. Haraway's affirmative notions of the postmodern differ from many theorists who see postmodernity as the death of culture, as the fading of a pristine time. For Haraway, there is no feminist ideal of the past. The theory of original unity prior to patriarchy is a myth, and so she wishes to explore the possibilities of the present. The cyborg, in its use in science fiction in particular, concerns not the basis of original innocence, but seizing the tools to mark the world that have marked them as other. Women have to embrace the machine, have to dive into the belly of the beast. Haraway accepts that cyber politics have been previously oppressive and utilised as a tool in male-dominated capitalism, but this is not the only possibility. Therefore, it is important to denounce ideals that demand a return to nature. Instead, one should be fearless regarding a joint kinship with animals and machines and of permanently partial identities and contradictory standpoints. Oh. Um, so that's how I'm going to wrap up about Haraway. Um, I'm not sure if any of that is useful. Um, and now I'm just going to dive straight into my second concept, which is Afrofuturism, um, which Wikipedia describes as a cultural aesthetic, philosophy of science, and philosophy of history. Uh, I'm going to spare you any analysis from me, so instead I'm just going to read some definitions from people who know what they're talking about. So the term is credited to Mark Derry, who in his 1994 essay, Black to the Future, defined it as speculative fiction that treats African-American themes and addresses African-American concerns in the context of 20th century technoculture, and more generally, African-American signification that appropriates images of technology and a prosthetically enhanced future. However, according to Ivan Salt, in their Masses essay that I've nicked from Google Scholar, Afrofuturism now encompasses more than Mark Derry originally described. Uh, they then go on to quote the following academics, and I've nicked the quotes they've, that they use in their essay. So, Yatasha L. Womack, in her book Afrofuturism, The World of Black Sci-Fi and Fantasy Culture, describes it as an intersection of imagination, technology, the future, and liberation. Ingrid Lafleur, art creator and Afrofuturist, describes it as a way of imagining possible futures through a black cultural lens. The longest definition included is from Cassandra L. Jones, Assistant Professor of Africana Studies at the University of Cincinnati. She defines Afrofuturism as an umbrella term that covers the literature, music, high art and street art that examines both the metaphors of technology as imagined by blacks across the African diaspora and the use of technology by the same. Working at the intersection of imagination, technology, future and liberation, which is Womack's quote from earlier, Afrofuturist authors, musicians and technicians rely on the resilience of black culture to imagine improbable and seemingly impossible futures, new technologies and new uses for old technologies using the tropes of science fiction and fantasy to critique social inequality. So Sun Ra is often credited as the main pioneer of Afrofuturism in music in the mid-20th century. Uh, there are other artists who some call Afrofuturist or Afrofuturist adjacent, uh, but that it's, I always find someone who disagrees with people being these people being included. Some people think they are, some people think they aren't. So these names include George Clinton, Lee Scratch Perry, Jimi Hendrix because of his album Electric Ladyland, Africa Bambata, and with more modern mainstream examples like Erica Badu, Outkast, and Missy Elliott. In terms of literature, Alexander Shevyanska considers Menet's work to be in the spirit of black speculative fiction writers such as Octavia Butler, 
Nalo Hopkinson, Nnedi Okorafor, Natanala Reeve-Dew, and N.K. Jemison, who have imagined complex worlds in which multidimensional black women not only occupy the centre of the plots, but whose bodies transcend their physical capabilities and engender transformative powers of love, respect, and healing. So now to link Afrofuturism to the Cyborg Manifesto, Grace D. Gibson states that Afrofuturism, much like cyberfeminism, uses science fiction and cyberculture in a speculative manner to escape the traditional definitions of what it means to be black or African in exotic terms in Western culture. These stories of alien and cyber beings that can be found in Afrofuturist literature, film and music are essentially metaphors that speak to real-life experiences of blacks in the diaspora. Tobias C. Van Veen states that the fictive reality of the android folds back on itself, reaching an uncomfortable point where the allegory of the android to blackness and the real experience of becoming an android have already met in the historical trauma of slavery. To which Anders Yudeladal adds, Put simply, Afrofuturism allows one to perceive black Americans as the most literal iterations of the non-human, because they were never allowed in the human category to begin with. So hopefully those quotes are going to help us in looking at Cindy Mayweather. Um, I think the first time that we see her in video form is in the emotion picture for Many Moons. is the third track on Metropolis of Chase Suite. So Elizabeth Sandifer sees the video as posing an interesting challenge for anyone trying to construct a linear narrative, in that it features Cindy Mayweather as a singing and dancing entertainer at the annual Metropolis Android auction, a setting that cannot be reconciled with the ostensible plots of March of the Wolfmasters and Violet Star's Happy Hunting. So the point here is that she was on the run in the first two songs, so how can she now be at this high-profile event without being arrested? I would argue that while it's the third track on the album, the emotion picture doesn't necessarily have to take place in this chronological order, and that it's, I always saw it as taking place before she went on the run when she was sort of this big cyber soul pop star on the toast of the town. However, even from this perspective, Sandifer is correct that it's difficult to reconcile the emotion picture with the events of the narrative, as Cindy seemingly dies at the end of the video, so obviously her story can't really continue if she's dead. To this point, Sandifer suggests that this is where time travel comes into Mayweather's story not as a means of straightforwardly visiting other places and times, but rather to reconceptualise Cindy as a figure of eternal resistance. I don't know if, it's, if, it's, if that's even time travel or just parallel universes, but this idea of there being multiple Cindys, um, I don't know quite how that fits into Haraway's double vision, because it's infinite rather than double, but it feels like it does. So I'll just leave that as a, a question, because I don't have an answer to it. Uh, anyway, I'll try and explain what happens in the emotion picture, uh, but I'd recommend you just go and watch it, because it's really good. So, it begins with a title card informing us that this is the Metropolis Annual Android Auction. We are then introduced to various characters, such as the golden hostess of the auction, Lady Maxa, and the auctioneer extraordinaire, Sir Lucius Leftfoot, uh, a name that would be familiar to any Outcast fans. In attendance is Chung Knox, a tech dandy, Six Savage, captain of the Metropolis Polis, Deep Cotton, the punk prophets, and I'm not sure if it's Moosey or Mousey, the Neon Valley crime lord. Lady Maestra, who looks a lot like Cindy Mayweather, I mean, they have the same face. They look a lot, I mean, they're the same. Uh, she enters riding a horse, and she's wearing red fox hunting clothes. 
Um, whether she's an android or maybe even the human on which Mayweather was modelled is unclear. Uh, it's then at this point that we're introduced to Cindy Mayweather, who's backstage before her performance. She's wearing a white suit and her hair is styled in a Monet, often incorrectly referred to as a pompadour or wampador. Um, I think this quote is in reference to Mayweather's hair and suits. So this is from Daylan K. English and Alvin Kim's Now We Want Our Funk Cut, Janelle Monet's Neo-Afrofuturism, in which they state that while Mayweather is visually gendered as female, she is nonetheless moving well beyond the normative feminine and, at least initially, seems to match Donna Haraway's classic theorising of the cyborg as a creature in a post-gender world resolutely committed to partiality, irony, intimacy, and completely without innocence. Uh, also, in terms of appearance, while backstage, Mayweather's mechanicalness is put on display for us, the viewer, but not the audience because she's backstage. So we see her white endoskeleton before she presses a button on the side of her head, which makes her appear human. English and Kim state that, with the flip of a switch, Mayweather transforms from white, a kind of human robotic ultra-whiteness, to human-seeming black. Uh, she then goes on stage to perform to her adoring fans. English and Kim, I'm going to quote their essay a lot, um, argue that this remarkable colour transformation and subsequent performance correspond well to an ironic awareness of the monstrousness of racial constructions and racialized economies of desire including within the music industry. And they mention how some of the bidding spectators are played by Monet's musical collaborators, um, Deep Cotton. However, Mayweather is also analogised in this video to quite specific identity, not only a fashion model, but also a black female slave on the auction block. So while Mayweather's performing, we see other androids, all with Mayweather's face. Uh, backstage, we see them being put into corsets or having their hair brushed. Uh, once they've been sufficiently prepared, they then walk up and down the catwalk while the audience bids for them. This, say English and Kim, makes a statement about how the exploitative nature of commodity culture is both inevitable and inescapable. So essentially it's Mayweather who is performing her protest song, but it's being performed at an event in which her people are being sold. So Cassandra L. Jones adds to this by referencing how Angela Davis felt that to some, her politics of liberation was reduced to the politics of fashion and that she was largely defined as a hairdo. So similarly, says Jones, many moons depicts a society attempting to co-opt Mayweather's rebellion, turning her insurrection into a fashion marked by celebrity. In the setting of her android slave auction, Mayweather's rebellion, much like Davis's hair and clothing, had been transformed by the overarching narrative of Metropolis's power structures to a politics of fashion, a consumable item that has lost its political force as a critique of heterosexist policies. So the motion picture ends with Mayweather levitating into the air, electricity coming from her body. She then falls to the floor seemingly dead and is then surrounded by androids who are wearing wedding dresses. English and Kim read this differently to Jones, so I'll read out some long quotes for them, which I'm hoping the sort of the ways in which these uh, contrast with each other sort of enacts Haraway's idea of double vision. So to English and Kim... The video ends with the android's elevation, at first suggesting freedom through escape, perhaps on a kind of mothership, but in the end looking a lot more like deactivation. Cindy Mayweather, whose very name combines sunny spring and the possibility of death, she may or may not weather her trials, similarly combines the notion of freedom achieved through the technological with the notion of robot as the ultimate malleable other, perpetually subject to domination and to fetishization within commodity culture. And then to Cassandra L. Jones, so she says, Red as either her death or orgasm as death in the vein of Lapity Moore, 
This moment of shuddering collapse represents a kind of homegoing for Mayweather that queers the system and sets her free from social control. I use homegoing in the African-American sense of return to a spiritual home or heavenly afterlife in death, but also as a return to an earthly space of family. The presence of these women as brides suggests that Mayweather's ability to queer the system of power has returned. She is now the tuxedoed woman in a queer wedding that will take her home. Mayweather takes up the mantle of black feminist Cheryl Clark, who sees lesbianism as an act of resistance to the heterosexism that lies at the base of racism and sexism. Despite her seeming death, this is not a moment that can be dismissed as another example of the bury your gaze trope in which LGBT characters are denied the promise of a loving future routinely granted to straight characters. Rather, Mayweather's death functions as a means of wresting control of the narrative for Metropolis. While Mayweather may register as already dead within the paradigm of the hunt that has already determined her fate, this figurative death frees her from societal constraints and allows her to continue as an underground freedom fighter. Despite the capitalist system's attempt to co-opt her revolutionary movement and reduce it to a fashionable commodity, the cyborg is not loyal to her paternalistic creator. Uh, so I've got nothing to add to that, so I'll just move on to The Ark Android, which is Monet's first album, which was released on the 18th of May 2010. The title refers to the prophecy of the Ark Android who will free Metropolis from the Great Divide, a secret society which has been using time travel to suppress freedom and love throughout the ages. It is now believed that Cindy is the Ark Android, or at least that's the, the over the course of the album that becomes clear. Uh, here, according to Yana Barro Gonzalez, Cindy is a role model to other androids and a model of other androids, as she appears to have been cloned at some point of the saga's complicated narrative. Uh, that was something that I completely missed. I mean, I'm, in many moons, you see the peop- the clones, I guess, the other androids who look like her, but in terms of it appearing in the Ark Android, completely missed that, so that's good. Um, the album includes two suites, so suites two and three, uh, which both begin with really impressive overtures. Uh, the songs also like join together, like you can't tell where one song ends and another begins necessarily, in a way that's really cool. Apart from if you had my phone in which they put a they put like a gap in between, it was very, very upsetting. Um so in terms of references, the poster of Fritz Lang's nineteen twenty seven film Metropolis shows the face of a robot with a futuristic city behind it in the distance. The cover for the Arc Android repurposes this image, but now the postmodern city is fused with what Natalie Agoro describes as African architectural design, and instead of being behind Cindy, the city sits on her head like a crown. Agoro adds that Mayweather's upper body is gowned in Afrofuturist metal garbs that mix futuristic technological devices such as bolts, light displays, and shaft hub couplings with triangular earrings reminiscent of ancient Egyptian pyramids in another image of past, present, and future. Uh, Metropolis, the 1927 film, is a obvious reference point throughout the Metropolis saga, um, not just in the name of the city and the fact that 2719 is a flipped 1927, but through the details of the narrative, if you've seen the film, you'll recognise plot points and the interesting ways in which they've been changed. For example, the robot in Metropolis is much closer to Haraway's conception of how centaurs were used as the other. So English and Kim see it as uh, representing the monstrous expression of an unchecked and evil alliance between industrial capital and technological innovation. Uh, the resolution of the film, uh, I mean, the other things that happen, but basically the robot is burnt at the stake, so in terms of her being positioned as the other, uh, that's very, very clear. Um, also in Metropolis, it's the son of a wealthy industrialist who's the protagonist, who's going to 
act as the mediator between the mind and the hand, which is the heart. Uh, that's a quote from the film, but that's also used in the sort of archandroid prophecy, so that's been directly lifted. And instead of it being a, a human man, it's now, instead of the uh, robot being evil, it's now the android who is the mediator or the archandroid. So uh, in terms of the album, I'm going to begin at the end of Suite 2, um, which doesn't seem to make sense, but just to me, with the song Mushrooms and Roses, as it's kind of, it, I guess it best represents the plot of the album. So the lyrics begin with... So I went to the Lyric Analysis website Genius and loads of people have contributed with different interpretations of what Mushrooms and Roses is, with some seeing it as Nirvana or a representation of genitals, but it's most commonly seen to be a bar. With this reading, Mushrooms and Roses is one of the various countercultural spaces that are a safe space for people deemed other. Uh, these are the places that, as Darius Antonio Zagara II states in their Masses thesis, finding moments of rupture in Monet's metropolis, shield taboo subject matter like interspecies coupling. Uh, the essay then goes on to state that it is in these locations that Mayweather discovers and is discovered by the demographic slice of the metropolitan community thriving in the social structure's cracks. It is with these people and around these people where she finds the communitas necessary to uncover moments of rupture that will allow her to overhaul the system. Uh, so communitas isn't some weird pronunciation of communities, although I might not be pronouncing it right. But um, So I didn't know what it meant, so I googled it, and ResearchGate told me that a community is defined by an inward focus, focus on encouraging each other, safe place, something to be built, um, while communitas involve social togetherness outside society, focus on task at hand, pushes society forward, experience through liminality. So to me, these points seem the same as the sort of oppositional consciousness and affinity of political kinship that's talked about in Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto. So these communities, sorry, communitas that um, Mayweather is involved in sort of fulfill what Haraway was talking about in A Cyborg Manifesto. Anyway, to go back to the plot, I, on Genius, I found this interpretation of Mushrooms and Roses by Genius contributor Desmond, and I really enjoyed it, so I'm going to include that here. So they say that, I always figured Mushrooms and Roses was a place, like a bar, or from the sound of the music, an opium soma den type place. And soma is a drug used in Huxley's novel Brave New World that sort of has no side effects but creates pure bliss. So um, an opium soma den type place that flies under the radar because it's too far underground or the authorities in Metropolis don't care about drug addicted people or BNW style create the drugs to keep them docile. While she can be free though of Anthony, this is Mayweather, Perhaps in some drug-induced stupor, this does nothing for the rest of android kind. This further highlights her choice to leave Metropolis and Green Down if you read Babob Ayar, which is the last song on the album, I think, in that way, in pursuit of freedom for herself and android kind, if you read it that way. Because to stay and be with Green Down and Mushrooms and Roses would be easy, but selfish and untrue. If it were simply a matter of bringing all the androids to a new land, how would that stop the police from following them there, or the elites in Metropolis from building more horticulture androids? Uh, but this reading conflicts with the Mushrooms and Roses equals Wonderland reading. Uh, that's uh, another thing that I won't bother getting into. 
Um, either way, it's intentionally vague, which means that all our interpretations are valid. I like to think of Cindy as a fighter rather than an escapist, so that's how I read the album. It also makes Manet's allusions to contemporary political issues more salient, in my opinion. Uh, I don't know if you can tell from the way I read that, but there's lots of brackets in that quote where uh, Desmond is sort of acknowledging all the different perspectives, and it's, it's really cool. But anyway, they also mention that Cindy is potentially about to leave Anthony Green down in order to become the Ark Android. Um, and to, from the Googling I've done, it seems like that's the main way in which people see this and, uh, Android, this album. It's her sort of toing and froing as to whether she wants to leave Anthony Green down or not. Elizabeth Sandifer points out how Suite 3, so the, the latter part of the Ark Android, contains the last mentions of Anthony Green down in the Metropolis Saga to date, uh, both in the Overture. Um, I won't bother to explain that bit. Uh, so he basically, basically, he's gone. He's gone from the end of this album. This is the last time we really hear from him. So in terms of the narrative being about their love, uh, that doesn't work for the whole project because he's... He's gone. Uh, you can see Cindy's conflicted emotions about whether to leave Green down throughout the album. Um, in Faster, the third song of the album, it seems that Cindy knows that she has to leave him. She says, Faster, faster, you But in the following track, Locked Inside, the opposite seems to be the case to the extent that having Green down in her life actually enables her to continue with her political mission. So she sort of says, um, This toing and froing continues through most of Sweet 2, but here we go, now we got to a point. It's uh, in Mushrooms and Roses that we are also introduced to another character who becomes increasingly important uh, from this point on, and that's Blueberry Mary. So Mayweather says, One of the regulars had long red hair, beautiful smile and rosy cheeks. Her name slips my mind. Ah, her name was... Uh... So Elizabeth Sandifer describes Mary as a cryptically defined figure of attraction within the Metropolis saga. Uh, this is definitely true as it's difficult to kind of work out exactly how she fits into the plot, but it's clear that Mayweather is attracted to her. Jumping ahead to the song Queen from The Electric Lady, Mayweather asks, Say is it weird to like the way she wear her tights? And is it rude to wear my shades? So Mayweather and Mary definitely have a sexual and or romantic relationship, uh, but I can't really work out any more than that. So next time you're listening, or if you've not listened before, listen out for any references to Mary and let me know what you think. Uh, obviously, I'm, that's, I'm missing out loads of plot points from this album, but um, I mean, there's a whole thing where her fans sort of seem to turn on her because she's not conforming. Um, however, I'm going to leave Mayweather for now and look at Janelle Monáe and her story. So accompanying the album The Electric Lady is a letter written on the 6th of April 2010 by Max Stellings, the Vice Chancellor of the Palace of the Dogs Asylum. Through it, we learn that patient 57821, note that number, Janelle Monet is also from the year 2719, but that she was kidnapped by some body snatchers one day after work, had her genetic code sold illegally to the highest bidder at a body farm, 
and was then forced into a time tunnel and sent back to our era. In 2719, Cindy Mayweather's organic compounds were then cloned for Monet's stolen DNA. Uh, this is why Monet in our present makes songs foretelling the coming of the Archandroid. Uh, Kim and English assert that the time travelling further connects Monet with the Afrofuturism of Sun Ra, George Clinton and Lee Scratch Perry in the 1960s and 1970s, as all three earlier figures also claimed to be from outer space and other times sent back to save black people on Earth. Cassandra L. Jones adds Amiri Baraka and Paul D. Miller, aka DJ Spooky, to this list of writers and artists who mix time travel and the weaponization of musical technologies. So Jones states that the trope of time travel is one means by which Afrofuturists reach beyond the self in an effort to reconstruct seemingly lost histories as well as reveal the contours of social inequality. And then according to Renina Jarman, for African-American women artists, time travel can act as a tool to create space to resist racial and sexual domination. Uh, building on this concept and the idea of cyborgs breaking down binaries, Joan sees the DJ as a rhythm scientist who dissolves the boundaries of the music as one song glides or crashes into another and, in doing so, extends the limits of her body, forging connections beyond the boundaries of her fingertips. In choosing songs from back in the day before her day, she reaches back in time as she creates new songs from these samples, she also projects herself into the future, creating an archive for future rhythm scientists to access. In this way, technology connects us to other people and to other times, allowing the past, present and future to merge so that we might access historical moments directly and yet in a way that is both transformed and transforming. By using sounds from different genres and eras of music, Monet, Joan states, fades out old voices, such as the homophobia-laden rhetoric of Eldridge Cleaver, Francis Cress Welsing, and other black power and black arts movement figures, to layer in the perspective of cultural critics such as Smith, Hooks, and McBride, giving their ideas an increased platform within the message. Jones then references English and Kim's conception of Monet's remix representing a funk cut, in response to the uncut or purely masculine funk of Sun Ra, George Clinton and Parliament, by the introduction of Monet's feminine and feminist critique. Jones concludes that Monet, in remixing the past, taking only what she needs, is able to function as a canon maker, who can bind the visions and goals of various eras and define her own vision of blackness and its goals for liberation by creating her own canon. That Monet is a time traveller offers one explanation as to why she exclusively wore suits for a number of years, in a 2010 interview with Bernadette McNulty of The Telegraph, Monet stated that I am a time traveller, so I don't want my clothes to date me. However, at the 2012 BET Black Girls Rock Awards, Monet gave another explanation, stating that When I started my music career, I was a maid. I used to clean houses. My mother was a proud janitor. My stepfather worked at the post office and my father was a trash man. They all wore uniforms and that's why I stand here today in my black and white. I wear my uniform to honour them. This is a reminder that I have work to do. I have people to uplift. I have people to inspire. If I'm understanding Haraway's double vision correctly, we need to view both of these explanations as true because each reveals dominations and possibilities unimaginable from the other vantage point. Uh, there are many examples in Monet's work in which we can engage in double vision, as I'm hoping it is correct in what I'm saying, such as the fact that Wonderland, spelt W-O-N-D-A-L-A-N-D, is both a place in Metropolis that represents a better world to be inhabited by humans and androids alike on equal footing, and an artist collective in the present day, the Wonderland Art Society. However, this quote from Anders Yiladal does a far better job of explaining this idea. So, In the parts of Afrofuturism that I excavate, literal and figurative modes of inquiry are symbiotic. The critical potential of Afrofuturism would be severely weakened if one focused on only one of those aspects. 
For instance, if one understands Monet's androids solely as being figures for the oppression of ethnic, racial, and sexual minorities and women, then it is just that, a metaphor. It is not real. There is a gap between the signifier, android, and the signified, oppression, and the one cannot explain the other. Yet, if one understands Monet's claim to androidhood solely as literal, then the statement loses critical potential. She will be an android and nothing more. The robot will not be able to connect to the social issues that she wants to engage with. However, when the two modes of questioning, literal and figurative, embrace one another, they can become intensified. For instance, when Monet claims to be an android, one has to acknowledge a few things. First, Monet is black, which means that the android anthology becomes embedded with black history, culture and existence. Second, because she is an android, black history, culture and existence become infused with the technology and thingliness of the android. Uh, Lidl Doll then quotes a 2014 interview with The Guardian's Paul Lester, in which Lester says, You once said I'm part android. Has this revelation haunted you? Monet, no, it's true. I am part android. Lester, really? Monet, absolutely. Lester, in the metaphorical sense you mean, in the sense that we're all wired up to some big theological or epistemological mainframe, or in the literal sense that you're part machine. Monet, oh yeah, I'm rewarded with singularity. My mind works at an exponential rate. Lester, but you don't have actual electrical cables running under your epidermis, do you? Monet, I'm the electric lady. Have you listened to my album, The Electric Lady? Lila Doll explains that here, Monet establishes herself as an actual android from her own narrative. Her answers take on a different meaning when considering the question posed to her just before the question quoted above. Are you the love child of David Bowie and Fritz Lang? To which she replies, the love child. My mother is a black woman from Kansas. This statement on its own is a wake-up call for the journalist trying to place Monet in a white context. She follows up on this statement of having human origins by stubbornly claiming that she is part android and rewarded with singularity, embodying an oscillation between the human and the non-human and the way they intertwine. She proudly insists on her heritage as a black American woman as she simultaneously enacts her origin, a collective embodied memory, as a racialized subject from the future. The conclusion here should not be that Monet is deluded or eccentric, but to be both born and raised in the real world by real people while being an android is entirely possible, because androids exist, just look at Monet. Uh, as an aside, because I really like that point, um, the fact that Monet has stated that she is part android confirms that she's also a cyborg by Harry's definition, and I think the fact that Anthony Greendown can morph into animals means that he can also be classed as a cyborg as he blurs the human-animal binary. Like, it doesn't have to be just a machine organism, um, which is a real naff point to follow up on that good one. But um, I'll move on. So um, after being transported to the present, so after being kidnapped, Monet was taken to the Palace of the Dogs Asylum. This is where we find her in the motion picture for Tightrope. Because baby, whether you This is probably the most well-known song off the Ark Android, uh, but again, we've got different interpretations of what was going on in the emotion picture. Uh, this time, the confusion is about who even is the protagonist in the video. So Arj Romano states that in the video, we see one of Mayweather's clones locked in an asylum, break out and rebel against the institution's strict rules against dancing. While Yana Barra Gonzalez states that Janelle Monet appears as herself and not as Cindy Mayweather, although she is still presented through a fictionalised rebel leader narrative. 
Uh, I think under the parameters that I've set up, we still need to say that both of these interpretations are correct, and maybe they belong to parallel universes. However, for the purposes of what I'm doing, we're going to view the protagonist uh, not as one of Mayweather's clones, uh, nor Manet as a fictionalised rebel leader, but as Manet, who is a time traveller from the future. Zagara II explains that in the video, Manet is victimised and institutionalised because her knowledge of the future is perceived as dangerous. In the asylum, her message of hope and prosperity stagnates because the normative segment of society is unwilling to learn new modes of being and communication. Stuck in this restrictive location, Monet's only avenue in finding escape and spreading her vision of hope is to dance. Uh, this goes against the rules of the asylum, in which we're told dancing has long been forbidden for its subversive effects on the residents and its tendency to lead to illegal magical practices. Uh, I've got some long quotes about Monet's dancing from Alexander Shavyanska, uh, which go completely over my head, but I'll include them now uh, as another idea that I'm just throwing at the water to see if it sticks. Uh, if you're a dancer, maybe you'll have better luck with this. So Shavyanska says that Monet's performances fashion a system of communication, a form of talking by dancing, which black performance and dance scholar Thomas F. DeFranz calls corporeal orature. He argues that dance is performative, mirroring the way in which speech may be equated with action. Dance movements convey speech-like qualities that contain meaning beyond the formal, aesthetic shapes and sequences of movement detailed by the body in motion. Just like speech makes meaning beyond the sound, tone and timbre of voice, so dance movements too tell stories beyond visual aesthetics that capture the body in between forms and positions. So Manet's movement, according to Shevyanska, retains stiff machine-like moves on the one hand, and on the other, explodes any strict rules that categorise movement when she performs her limitless gestures of frenzied dance. Her characteristic way of widening her eyes and rolling her eyeballs, her use of syncopated body isolations and angular, robot-like dance steps, toy with the figure's dual nature, balancing on the verge of organicity and artificiality. Manet's dance style resembles a collection of outbursts as her body becomes her music. The use of syncopation in her kinetic endeavours accentuates Monet's machine-like presence, which simultaneously grounds her body in the past, present and future. Um, as stated, we've definitely reached the limits of my understanding here, but there's so much stuff in that quote that seems to link to the themes that we're talking about in terms of the past, present and the future, the organicity and the artificiality. I mean, there's a, a lot there if I was able to unpick it. Um, however, back in the asylum, Arja Romano states that at the end of this brassy jubilee, however, Monet escapes only briefly to the grounds outside before returning in a daze to her cell-like room, escorted by eerie black-robed ministrants with mirrors for faces. This is a crucial part of Monet's dystopia. It seems to perpetually feed off its mini-rebellions, which are necessarily brief. The androids are trapped in a Black Mirror-esque cycle. They struggle to break out of their superimposed system of conformity briefly grasp their true identities and then they're inevitably stuffed back into their blank-faced roles as machines in Metropolis. So this was an idea that was in The Many Moons, a motion picture in terms of her rebellion being consumed. Um, it will appear again in the album The Electric Lady, which is now what we're going to talk about. So The Electric Lady, a title that refers to Jimi Hendrix's 1968 album Electric Ladyland, was released on the 6th of September 2013. It includes suites 4 and 5 of the Metropolis Saga, and it was at this point that the total number of suites increased from 4 to 7. Uh, you can see this represented by little dots on the cover. Um, however, the events of the album appear to be taking place before those uh, Metropolis to Chase suite, and so it functions as a sort of prequel. Sandifer's article about the plot of the Metropolis Saga raises 
three points that complicate the idea of this album being a prequel. Firstly, the album marks a decisive move forward in Monet's songwriting and production, such that it is conceptually difficult to treat it as an earlier, less mature version of her central character. Secondly, Sweet Five includes no sci-fi signifiers, so does this even take place in 2719? And thirdly, while being a prequel would explain the absence of Anthony Greendown, uh, this is complicated by the fact that Blueberry Mary makes multiple appearances in the lyrics, but it seems like uh, Mayweather didn't meet her until the events of the Ark Android. On top of this, in the same interview where Manet gave the backstory of Slop City, Manet's co-producer Chuck Lightning explains how it is in this album that Cindy discovers that she's the Ark Android. Um, so how can we view this album as a prequel if that would entail that she always knew she was the Ark Android before the events of Metropolis of Chase Suite? Um, I'm going to say it's double vision again. That's the, that's the only way this works, I think. Um, regardless, the Mayweather of this album is definitely a pop star, as shown by the fact that we hear DJ Crash Crash tee up her records on his radio show. Oh, this is DJ Crash Crash, and you're on the air here at WDRD. We are here once again talking about our favorite fugitive, Cindy Mayweather, Electric Lady Number One. Carla, you are on the air. Hello, my name is Peggy Lakeshore, and I live in Neon Valley. Uh-huh. I just want to say I'm disappointed. You're disappointed? Disgusted, actually. Really? Yeah, this whole thing. Really? I mean, they should just do whatever they do to people like that. People like that? What does that mean? I mean, she's just not even a person. She's, she's, she's not a, a person. Droid. Well, you're she's right. Like she's not a you. person. She is a droid. She is an Android and Alpha Platinum 9000, and she is jamming. Next call, you're on the air. Dude, I want to say power up. Power up. Power up. Mm-hmm, power up to you. Okay, I'm a student at Time University, okay? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And my name is Josh. Okay, Josh. I've been following you on Cyber Soul and the whole droid um, uh-huh. um, underground for the while yeah. now. And I just want to know if, you know, uh-huh, um, if you guys in the Android community truly believe that Cindy Mayweather is, you know, not just like Electric Lady number uh-huh. one and all, but mm-hmm. like also the Arc Android. Oh, no, because no, no, not on my show. Zone. Next caller, you're on the air. His catchphrase, Power Up, Power Up, appears repeatedly. And according to Nathalie Agoro, it acts as an overarching leitmotif for the affirmation of a technologically enhanced agency. It is also a reminder that the adoption, and then she quotes Grace D. Gibson's quote, of science and technology by marginalised groups has always been an essential component of resistance. Uh, This links to the ideas of technology in the real world, as described by a cyborg manifesto and in Afrofuturism. So I'm going to take a moment to explore some of those ideas before returning to the Electric Lady, beginning with the digital divide. So Ivan Salt defines the digital divide as how the digital age, once assumed to be inherently empowering and decentralizing, can in fact lead to the increased marginalization of those who do not have immediate access to the latest digital or technological innovations. As innovations are never introduced to everyone immediately or even to everyone at all, some people will inevitably be excluded from technological innovations. Um, Again, I'm going to follow up with a shit point that um, it's quite interesting that the digital divide is in this context, and then it's the Great Divide who are the evil society in uh, Metropolis. Um, So, Yana Barra Gonzalez uh, makes the same claim as Haraway about the positive and negative elements of technology by pointing out how social media is now widely used in activism, including planning and participating in protests. The internet carries, spreads, and multiplies calls and warnings. Uh, Cassandra L. Jones makes a specific reference to platforms like Kickstarter that create fundraising opportunities and to Black Girls Code, a non-profit body that seeks to teach young African-American women and girls to code in order for them to enter financially lucrative spaces that continue to be occupied by men. 
She concludes that collective action and digital revolutions are beginning to spill forth from the witch's brew of speculative fiction and social criticism in which Afrofuturists engage. Uh, Jones also quotes Anna Everett's argument that the internet's spatial and temporal ruptures render a promising site for the establishment of an egalitarian technosphere because, she continues, not only do national borders increasingly disappear in cyberspace, they are replaced by new kinship structures now predicated on the fluidity of cybernetic visual communities and homelands. This, according to Jones, is what Monet and her fellow artists might term a wonderland, and all of us, but particularly African-American women and girls, are invited to wonderland. Uh, on the other side, in terms of the negative side, Gonzalez points out how social media using activism can be censored or easily traced. Equally, Simone Brown points out how technology has created increased surveillance of black people, stating that where public spaces are shaped for and by whiteness, some acts in public are abnormalised by way of racialising surveillance and encoded for disciplinary measures that are punitive in their effects. So this is a clear example of how we need to consider the positive and negative of technology simultaneously in order for benefits to be pursued. Uh, in terms of storytelling rather than natural technology, Dan Hasler-Forrest's article The Politics of World Building Heteroglossia in Janelle Monet's Afrofuturist Wonderland looks at the extent to which Monet's world building, through not being linear and canonical like big blockbuster franchises like Marvel and Star Wars, can offer an anti-capitalist message that challenges the system. This is incredibly difficult for cultural products to do, as even the most subversive counter-narratives can be effortlessly appropriated and recycled within the very system they attack. And at the same time, the extra-textual process of commercial branding and franchising further reinforces unstable but largely effective inoculation. In terms of Monet, this is complicated by her being signed onto P. Diddy's Bad Boy Records, uh, and her labels are being alternative and independent, uh, can similarly be absorbed and contained. So this is really interesting in terms of how Monet, like Mayweather, both of their critiques get sort of absorbed into the system. And I think Dan Hasler-Forest is currently writing a book about Janelle Monet, which I'm excited to read. Um, so now I'm going to move on to Queen. which is a song from The Electric Lady, um, specifically looking at its emotion picture, in which the use of technology in the pursuit of freedom is also a key theme. So we enter the living museum where legendary rebels from history have been frozen in suspended animation. Here, Janelle Monet and Deep Cotton are no longer in the Palace of the Dogs Asylum, but instead trapped in the museum along with their accomplice, Badula Oblongata, who looks a lot like Erica Badu. Jones states that just as museums of the mid-19th century and beyond impose order on the chaos of cabinets of curiosity that might combine artefacts from disparate eras, regions and or histories, the museum functions as a linear prison where all revolutionary voices from across time have been placed in orderly suspended animation, removing the danger of their challenge to the larger society and placing them on exhibit to be consumed by viewing audiences. Uh, there's probably a link to that to uh, Hassler Forrest's conception of capitalism doing the same to Monet's work, um, but I'm not smart enough to make it. So Jones makes a parallel argument that the museum suggests that the Western cultural aesthetic can only appreciate Monet's art within the confines of this space, and the attempt to interpret Monet using the white framework interrupts the full force of her production, limiting her, trapping her. Um, an obvious example of this is when Monet was asked if she's the love child of Bowie and Lang, and this also links to my own introduction to Monet, in which I first saw her on the cover of the Culture magazine that's included in the Sunday Times, 
on the 4th of July 2010, uh, which had the headline, A New Bowie Has Landed, Janelle Monáe is Ziggy Stardust for the iPod Generation. So, um, Shevlyanska quotes Leah T. Bascom's statement that the emotion picture offers an alternative to the official archive of the Anthropological Museum by creatively rewriting the museum space, which historically has served as an epitome of the Western encounter with otherness. By foregrounding motion as resistance, Monet critiques ways in which this institution has historically positioned black bodies as passive objects of the scientific gaze. Uh, again, this links to the Bowie point, but also the idea of the other in uh, Harry's Cyborg Manifesto. So in the video, two young black women enter the museum and place the record for Queen on a record player. The music begins playing and it starts to free the rebels from their imprisonment. So Jones links this to the real world uses of technology just discussed by stating that the young women's use of technology to free the prisoners also reflects the activism of Afrofuturism, resembling the Black Lives Matter movement's use of Twitter to circumvent mass media's failure to report on the growing number of unarmed African Americans killed at the hand of vigilantes and police officers. Uh, Jones then expands on the ways in which increasingly technological aspects of the struggle for social justice are made evident. In freeing the prisoners, several important arguments are made for the expansion of the term human and, as Banks notes, what it means to be human in relationship with technologies and technological systems. The first is this question of the human rights of prisoners, and one that seems particularly relevant since due to racist policing practices and policies, African Americans are overrepresented within the American prison system. The second is to challenge the anti-technological blackness and the role of women in the world of technology. In the video, the young black women do not accept the passive role of feminine observers in a highly technological atmosphere. They become participants in the scene created for the viewer. Uh, so Jones also connects this use of technology to time travel, stating that while the audience is not privy to the apparatus by which they travel through time, technology is both the mechanism by which the rebels are imprisoned and their means of escape. Monet's revolutionary digital griot uses technology as means of liberation from the prison of the museum. Technology alone, however, does not provide the necessary freedom. To be sure, it is technology that is used to contain and de-weaponize the movement of the rebel leader and her fellow revolutionaries. Rather, it is a complex use of technology that acknowledges race, gender, sexuality, class and history that brings together echoes from the past, challenges the present and hope for the future. Uh, so the final song I'm going to look at is Primetime. This was the third single off The Electric Lady. It's track six of Sweet Four. So in the emotion picture, we see Metropolis for the first time since many moons. Uh, here, Cindy is working as a cyber server at the Electric Sheep nightclub, which the YouTube description for the video describes as a sin bar serving high-class show droids to the rich and lonely in a dangerous section of Metropolis known as Slop City. Here, Cindy flirts with a man who, from the song I thought was Anthony Greendown, but is in fact a new character called Joey Vice, who's played by Miguel. Um, the video also states that it's Janelle Monet playing Cindy, not Cindy in the video, which further complicates all this. So um, Cindy is fired after her boss does nothing after she's harassed by a customer. And so Arja Romano states that she escapes with Joey Vice into a vibrant underground subculture full of music and life. In Metropolis, music and dance are not only disruptive elements that can free the soul and speak truth to power, they are a summons to Cindy's fellow androids to rise up and claim their identities. Um, I've always seen the emotion picture for Primetime as a happy time in Mayweather's life. Uh, the YouTube description describes how the innovative cyber soul music played at the club 
directly impacted Cindy and she began singing and performing her own innovative compositions a short time after quitting this assignment. In addition, Cindy became determined to change the public perception of what an electric lady could be, dream and aspire to after working in the dismal conditions at the club. So yeah, that seemed, I guess that's not 100% positive, but like, she makes something out of it. Um, however, Liedlerhal sees the ending as acting in the same way as Many Moons and Tightrope, where the Android Rebellion is thwarted by saying that this memory of the sort of starting at the bottom and fighting her way to rock star status is part of her programming, so it's not actually her real memories. Um, the uniqueness of the rock star can easily be replicated and installed in other androids, thus encouraging or forcing a specific behavioural pattern and rebellion is not achieved solely by making it. Simply getting to the top was obviously the Great Divide's plan all along. So now I'm going to finish by briefly looking at Dirty Computer, Janelle Monae's most recent album from 2018. And I say briefly because Cindy Mayweather doesn't appear on the album at all. Uh, as Aya Romano sees it, in Dirty Computer, Jane, who's the protagonist in that, and Cindy finally coalesce into a whole person, a queer black woman finally convinced of her power. From interviews with Monae from around the release of that album, it appears that Cindy, through whom she was able to speak about herself metaphorically, had ceased to be sort of protective, but instead was inflexible and stifling. So previously, when pestered about her sexuality, Monet would say that she only dates androids. Now she speaks as a free-ass motherfucker who has been in relationships with men and women. One of the reasons I decided to focus on Cindy rather than Janelle was that I thought it would limit the scope of this podcast because it would essentially just remove a whole album from my reading. However, just like everything, it's not quite that simple. In Dirty Computer, Monet plays the human Jane 57821. There's that number again whose memories are to be cleaned because she is deemed dirty. Uh, the memories, are, as they're removed, we sort of see them and they're the music videos that accompany each of the songs. Uh, the first thing I'd recommend that you do after listening to this is go and watch Dirty Computer. It's all on YouTube. It's about 40 minutes long. It's really, really good. So, anyway, I mean, I've mentioned it, but the 57821 from Jane's name is Cindy Mayweather's Android number. Uh, it was also Monet's number when she was trapped in the Palace of the Dogs Asylum. On top of this, Jane's lover is named Mary Apple 53. So is this, is this Blueberry Mary? Is it a different version of Blueberry Mary? Basically, yeah, it, it's, you can't neatly tear these things apart. They're all connected. To the extent that Charles Pulliam Moore, writing for Gizmodo, theorises that Dirty Computer is set before the events of Metropolis and that Jane's deleted memories are a core part of Cindy Mayweather's programming. Uh, in the article, he quotes from Monet talking about Dirty Computer, and I'll end with this. So, because I had this album before the Arc Android, all of these projects are connected. Dirty Computer is a sort of prelude to Arc Android and Electric Lady, and if you watch the emotion picture, Jane 57821 is involved in all of the albums, and the DNA is there. I left little Easter eggs for people to figure that out, but I'm just saying right now that it's all connected. <laughs> <laughs>